Good afternoon. Um, passage for today is uh, Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 to 11, continuing with our series on the seven letters to the uh, seven churches. So I would invite you, if you're able, to rise as I read this portion, Revelation chapter 2, verse 8 to 11. And it says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words are the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for your word and for the provision we have to, to read it, to preach it, and to understand it so freely in this land. It's a privilege that's denied to many of our fellow brothers and sisters, a lot. As we go through this call to be faithful no matter what the world uh, expects or persecutes us, a lot, we pray, a lot, that you'll grant us the wisdom needed to take this message to heart. In your, the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you. Uh, there was an article in uh, Christianity Today, maybe about 10 years ago. It describes uh, an incident that happened in Turkey, um, in a city called Izmir. Uh, in 1994, a very devout Muslim called Nehati Aydin, um, he was training to be a Islamic preacher, so a very hardcore uh, Muslim. Because of problems with their public transportation system, he found himself one day uh, in an overcrowded bus sitting next to a lady called Semsi. And this lady happened to be a Christian. And, and she was reading the Bible, and he was curious. So he asked her, um, are you a Christian? She said, yes. And then he accused her of being a foreign missionary. And she said, no, I'm a very loyal Turkish citizen. And then she boldly responded to him, we should all be missionaries of our faith. Aren't you a missionary? And so her response says, caught him off guard. And he inquired again. And so began a friendship between these two, where every day for a year, he would go to Islamic seminary. But on the way to that uh, institution, he would talk to this uh, lady. And within a year... He, he had quit school and he had accepted the claims of Jesus Christ at great price to himself. He was disowned by his family, who also threatened to kill Semse, and he lost his job in the process. And the two married, and in a culture, they say, where family is everything, they were cut off and alone. It says, we were so scared, but we were in love. And he grew more committed to outreach than his wife. In 2000, he served a month in prison on trumped-up charges when police caught him distributing Christian literature. And they attended a fellowship in Izmir uh, where a pastor officiated at their wedding and then um, sent them to a remote province in Turkey uh, which was very conservative uh, Islamic, which was a very conservative Islamic province. And there he directed a local publishing house and he became a pastor of a church plant. On April 18, 2004, he kissed his wife goodbye and left for the office. Two hours later, he and two other Christians were dead 
because his first appointment of the day was a Bible study with several Turkish youth who said they were exploring the claims of Christianity. Instead, these false seekers turned on the three men in the office. They tied the three up, then beat and stabbed them repeatedly. And as the police arrived, they cut their throats. And all five suspects carried notes in their pockets declaring, we did this for our country. They are attacking our religion. Now, when you read something like that, you, you know, these are things that unfortunately are very common in today's world. But what's interesting is the city of Izmir is the city of Smyrna, which is one of the only, it is the only city of the seven cities mentioned in Revelation that still exists. And the challenges that post, that were, you know, that the church in Smyrna faced, it shows, as we read, exist even today. So taken together, these seven letters, they, they contain a totality of the Christian church's experience of struggle in this world, both in the time of writing and today. And what you see in these seven cities, these seven churches, is that every church has challenges. Every church is a local entity with local challenges. And every church takes on the character of the city that it finds itself in. In the ancient world, you know, we are so used to being mobile that we don't really consider ourselves as citizens of any particular place. We are all global citizens now, as they say. But in the ancient world, each city was like a country in itself. And so every church took on the character of the city for good and for bad. You know, there were some good ones in certain cities. You know, you could live in peace and freedom. You had the ability to do godly vocation. You had prosperity that could help you help other Christians. The bad was that you might be seduced by the city's pleasures and you might be diverted away from Christian witness. And at worst, like in the city of Smyrna, they would force you to deny Christ as a condition of living in that city. So each of these seven letters ultimately ask the same question. When push comes to shove, are you going to follow Christ or are you going to follow the city that you live in? Will you maintain a Christian character or will you take on the character of the city? If the city threatens your livelihood or your life, will you still be faithful? And we look at the city called uh, Smyrna. The church there was a very small church, but it was probably established by, on Paul's third uh, missionary trip to the region of Asia Minor. And in these seven letters, it is only one of two churches that, is not, that does not have any flaws that are pointed out. This and Philadelphia. So... Both these churches faced persecution and they both did not seem to have any flaws that were explicitly pointed out. And the city of Smyrna was one of the richest, most beautiful, influential trading cities in Asia. It, was a, it had a landlocked harbor, which meant that it was a, a big port of trade. And it had beautiful architecture. And it had this um, geography which se- made it seem like as you moved up into the city, if you looked from above, it was as if the city uh, formed a crown. So the ancient people of that time used to call Smyrna the crown of Asia, both for its beauty and for this topographical feature that it had. Moreover, it had a very long history. Smyrna, because of its location, because it was a port, was subject to multiple invasions. And one invasion destroyed it so completely that the whole city was just rubble. But then somehow... It rebuilt itself and it rose, uh, they said, like a phoenix from the ashes. 
it came back to life from death. So these people thought themselves, in a sense, to be invincible. So they were proud. The citizens of Smyrna were proud to be uh, members of that city because of the privileges that it had, the wealth, the prosperity, the, the reputation. But its privileges came with a price. Smyrna was known to be faithful to the empire, and it was so faithful that it was a center of emperor worship where they would worship the Caesar who was ruling at that time as God. And it was mandatory for citizens to participate in emperor worship. In fact, the temple sacrifices were fully funded by tax money. So obviously this was undoubtedly difficult for the Christians of Smyrna who knew the gospel of Jesus Christ was what saved them from their sins and that he alone demanded their allegiance. If you read the beginning of Revelation, you see he, Jesus Christ is a lamb who was slain, but he's also Alpha and Omega. His eyes are like a flame of fire. His voice, the roar of many, many rivers. He's the ruler of the universe. And he alone was worthy of their ultimate allegiance, not Caesar. So these Christians were mercilessly persecuted and they were struggling to stay afloat as a community. Its members were even fearful that they would be put to death. So this letter is a message of comfort to them and to all persecuted churches that provide a timely reminder to stay faithful because their Lord would not let go of them in life and in death. And as you read this letter, you, you will see that there are three uh, particular points that the writer wishes to make. The first is that Jesus Christ is the Lord over life and history, not the city. Then the second point is that there are life-altering costs to following Christ when you don't pay allegiance to the city. And lastly, there are eternal rewards that Christ offers which the city or the world cannot. So these three points, keep that in mind as we go through these verses. In verse 8 of chapter 2, it says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. You know, it, it's addressed, here it reads as angel, but it's addressed to the elder or to the pastor of the church in Smyrna. And, and it talks about Jesus Christ. You know, the attributes of Jesus Christ are too many for us to recount. Uh, in a short period of time. Even in this book, there are many themes and variants of how we call Jesus Christ. He's the son of man. He's the lamb who was slain and so on. But if you notice in the seven letters to the churches, the attribute of Christ that is referenced perfectly suits this particular situation that church is going through, either to comfort them or to provoke them into repentance. So last week, we were talking about the church in Ephesus. The problem with the church in Ephesus was really that you know, it says they lost their first love, but really what it was that they had no joy. They had no passion. They had no desire. They did all the right things. You know, they, 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 they prayed and they read their Bible, but their, their life was like a slog. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's like one of, it's one of those churches where, you know, people might say, well, we believe that you believe whatever you say is true, but man, I don't want to be a Christian until the last moment I die looking at your life. So Jesus Christ comes to the church in Ephesus and says, what your testimony is, is not reflective of the life that I bring. This lack of zeal, this lack of joy, this lack of passion. So he, he says, I am the one, if you read uh, the beginning of chapter 
two, I'm the one who holds the seven stars and the seven lampstands. I'm the one who holds the leadership of the church and, and walks in the midst of the testimony of the churches. And he threatens to remove their witness. Basically, he says that you will no longer be worthy of having a legacy to testify to me because you're such a joyless, loveless church. And here we see a church that is tearing down the might of a city that is powerful and it derives its power from its long history and from, from its, its power to grand life and death. So the church in Smyrna, its attention is brought to Jesus Christ who is speaking to them. He says, he's the first and the last. I am the ruler of history. I was there before Smyrna was a hint of an idea in someone's mind. And I will exist long after the memory of Smyrna is wiped from the earth. In essence, he's saying that Smyrna may threaten your present, but I hold securely your past, your present, and your future. And then he goes on to say, you know, I am the one who died and came to life. You know, the story that Smyrna died and came back to life was, was so prevalent. But Jesus is saying that its resurrection pales in comparison to me who has life in himself, who has the power to lay down his own life, who has the power to take it back up again the one who died on the cross and the one who rose from the grave to live forevermore, conquering death, holding the keys of death and hell in his hand. He's saying, Smyrna may condemn you to death, but I can bring life out of that death. So the attribute of Christ that is referenced to the churches is perfectly suited to the particular situation that they're going through. Then in verse 9, he talks about the costs of following him in the midst of uh, a, a rebellious world. It says in verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews but are not and are a synagogue of Satan. He says he knows their suffering. And specifically, he mentions three aspects of that suffering. He's, there's tribulation or trouble or a lack of peace, poverty, and slander which is like false accusations. You see, normally any city or any country that wishes to attract you attracts you by promising you at least three things. That is peace, prosperity, and the ability to make your own life or to create a legacy or, or a reputation. Here, Smyrna, instead of giving these Christians those privileges, threatens to take all of them away in order to break their faithfulness to Christ. See, generally Christianity or the Christian faith does not demand any active opposition to the world and to the ruling authorities. We are called to be not of the world, but in it. And so we read, for example, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 11, it's, you know, Paul says, aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. Similarly, in, in Romans chapter 13, verse 1, he says, let every person be subject to the governing authority. So there's no concept in Christianity that somehow Christians are always in active opposition to the world. Of course, what's interesting is that the usual way that the devil and the world tempts Christians to fall away from their faithfulness to Christ is actually by promising these very same things, peace and security, prosperity, and reputation, but apart from Christ. That is the usual way in which 
Christians are tempted to break their allegiance to Christ. You know, C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters writes, you know, he's talking about, um, you know, satirically uh, a strategy between demons to tempt Christians. He says, prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he's finding his place in it, while really it is finding its place in him. So what, what he's saying is that the usual course of the world is to tempt you with these things and to pursue these things at the expense of your faithfulness to Christ. So Christians are more often tempted by the abundance and persuasion of these things than they are by their denial. So if you look at these seven churches or the six other churches, that is similar to the afflictions that many of these other churches had. They went after wealth. They were rich, but they were not faithful to Christ. But the church in Smyrna was different. They were not tempted to bow the knee to Caesar in order to gain these privileges for themselves. So the city went after them, went after their livelihood, went after even their lives. And their persecution probably entailed some kind of constant harassment by the authorities and the mobs of, of, of you know, people who were opposed to them. Forceful uh, seizure of their property, of their houses, their businesses. They were denied entry into what is called trade guilds. You know, here in Canada, we have, you know, engineers have a, a kind of guild. But in the ancient world, to, to practice a trade, you had to be member of a society that's called a guild. And so Christians, because they did not bow the knee to Caesar, were denied entry into these guilds. So they did not have the ability to make a livelihood properly. They did not have the ability to do business and more. And, and the other aspect of the persecution is what Jesus calls slander of the Jews, you see, the Jews, by virtue of their complicated history with the Romans and their rebellion uh, with the Romans in the past, had gained an exception from emperor worship that was exclusively given to the Jews. They did not have to worship Caesar in light of their Jewish religion and Jewish heritage. And Christianity was initially considered a Jewish sect, an offshoot of Judaism. And therefore, Christians also escaped persecution and the need to worship Caesar. Now, obviously, the Jews did not like that. And so they resorted to telling the Romans who the Christians were and saying the Christians are not Jews. So they should not be given the same privileges that we have to avoid emperor worship. And why Jesus says they are slandering the false accusations are probably one that they, used to, they, they were saying that the Christians were a threat to the peace and security of the Roman rule, which was not true. And secondly, in a more spiritual sense, they were saying that they were not the true children of God. And, and, and the Jews denied Jesus. And so Jesus' condemnation of the Jews, which is very harsh, you know, he calls them the synagogue of Satan, is driven because uh, by their participation in the persecution of the church. The law mandated that they should protect the weak and the powerless. Instead, they were persecuting the weak and the powerless. And their active and continuing denial of Jesus as the Son of God. And he calls them the synagogue of Satan because in their actions, they were not reflecting God, but they were reflecting their father, who Jesus, you know, in John chapter 8 says is the devil. Because the devil in, in John chapter 8 is the father of lies. And here... He's saying it's the devil who is the false accuser. He is the slanderer. And, and you are not a synagogue of God, but you are a synagogue of Satan. 
So they are going through all this persecution, both from the Romans and from the Jews. But then he says, I know of, I know your suffering. Not, you know, sometimes, you know, we have tragedies and we have rulers who will often say, I cannot understand what you're going through, but you have our support or our sympathy. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. Neither is he saying, I know from the perspective of knowledge, you know, like God is omniscient, so I know everything. But it is more, I know, I've gone through what you are going. It is a knowledge of experience. He has gone through trouble. He has gone through poverty. He has gone through the slander of the world till he was crucified on the cross of Calvary. So his I know is a source of strength and comfort and empathy for this church because their Savior has gone ahead of them in their suffering. And they get to know him better in the fellowship of their suffering with him. And moreover, he promises them that what they have in him is greater than what Smyrna can offer, greater than what the world has taken away from them. He says, you are poor, but you have spiritual riches in heaven, treasures that cannot be um, you know, destroyed by moth and rust. And, and though it's not said here, they have a peace that passeth all understanding, even when the world tries to take it away. And they have an identity in Jesus Christ that is superior to the slander of the world. So he says, I know what you're going through. And in verse 10 we read, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. And he, he goes on to say and encourage them, do not fear, I have seen your future. And though it will be worse in the short term, he wants to remind them that he's still in control of their life and their future. And, and the particular escalation of their suffering is, is in the form of imprisonment. In Roman times, imprisonment was never the punishment for a crime. Instead, it was to do one of three things. They would imprison you to force you to change your behavior or they would imprison you because you're awaiting trial. And in many cases, they would imprison you because you were condemned to die. So you would be in prison till one day you would be taken uh, to the arena, uh, in many cases, to be, to be uh, fed to the lions, for example. So imprisonment was not the punishment, it was a means to an end, which might even be death. And, and he says that the devil, he's the immediate instigator of this persecution. But he wants to pull their vision slightly upwards, slightly above their current situation, and he wants to show them that they could take comfort in the fact that though the devil was instigating this, though he, the devil thought that this was temptation beyond endurance to test, to, to shipwreck their faith, Instead, the word used here is testing, that this was testing under the sovereignty of God, that though the devil intended to use this persecution to destroy your faith, God was going to use this trial to strengthen their faith. That's why the word here is testing. 
and, and you can see the Lord's control over the trial by the very definitive nature of the period of testing. He says 10 days. And, and the reason why it's 10 days is it's not, it's not to be taken literally as 10 days, but rather it's to, it is to show that it is not a short amount of time, but it is not never ending. It has an end. It is a definitive period of time. And it also could mean or it is supposed to cast their attention to the 10 days that we read in Daniel. In, in the book of Daniel, right at the beginning, Daniel and his companions take uh, a test for 10 days where they don't eat the food from the palace that the king gives. Instead, for 10 days, they eat only vegetables and water. And at the end of 10 days, they are more uh, fit, more um, you know, healthy than those who partook of the table. So the message here is that you would have a definitive period of testing where the temptation is to break your allegiance to Christ and to go and pledge your allegiance to the city. But don't do it. That trial, that test is going to end and, and Jesus wants them to endure for 10 days until the testing comes to an end. So he's aware that for some in the church, this imprisonment will lead to death. And so his exhortation is for them to stay faithful even when death is the result. And then he goes on to say, but to the one who conquers this trial, even death will not be the end. For Jesus promised to them, he says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He says his promise is that you will inherit the crown of life. Just like the attributes of Jesus are apt for the situation that each church finds themselves in, so are the descriptions of the rewards that Christians will inherit in these seven letters. See, for the joyless church in Ephesus, the reward for their repentance was that they would get to eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. The paradise of God signifies eternal joy and pleasure in the presence of God. That was the reward that was promised to the church in Ephesus if they repented. But to the church in Smyrna, that is having the threat of death hanging over them. The reward that they are to set their eyes on their focus on to endure the suffering that they're about to go through is the crown of life or their portion of eternal life with Jesus Christ in heaven in the very presence of God. It is a life that is qualitatively and quantitatively better than the life that Smyrna offers to you. He's saying Smyrna may kill you, but they will not take away your life. For yours is the gift of eternal life because you have put your faith in me. And you have put your trust and your hope in me and not in this world. So you will not have, so you will not perish, but you will have everlasting life. And what's interesting, there's two historical points that you might be interested in here. Like Smyrna, like many you know, modern societies, had the practice of giving medals, in their case, a literal crown to people who had died. And, 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 and you know, they had done something great for the city or they wanted to honor them, so they'd give a crown. And, and you can think that the world crowns corpses, but the Lord crowns those who have died and yet will live again. And the other tradition in the Roman Empire was when 
the emperor would enter a city. The faithful of the city would go and put a crown on him. If you've watched uh, many of these uh, gladiator-type movies, you will see that. They will enter a city, they'll be seated, and the, the rulers of the city will come and place a crown. But the Lord, who is the king of the universe, gives the crown to those who follow him. In stark opposition to the city, he doesn't crown corpses. He doesn't take crowns, but rather he is giving crowns to those who follow him. And so he says in verse 11, who, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. See, Jesus Christ ends his exhortation both reaffirming and expanding on the benefits of the crown of life. He's saying, I conquered death. I conquered death. So I'm telling you, those of you who will follow my example and conquer death and the world and its trials, you will not only have everlasting life, but you will not be hurt by the second death. What is the second death? You know, everyone will die. Whether the city kills you or you die of a heart attack, you're going to die. And everyone has to stand before the judgment of God on the last day. And on that day, the Lord will be a consuming fire, punishing those who are faithful to the world and not to him. And they'll be consigned to the lake of fire in hell, to eternal suffering away from the presence of God. And that is the second death. The first death is nothing compared to the extremity of the second death. All those who have put their trust in the world, in the city, may gain a few years of life here and lose eternity. Whereas, you know, the crown of Smyrna won't protect you from the Lord who holds the keys of death and Hades when you face him seated on the great white throne of judgment. Only those who have overcome the world and who have gained the crown of life, only they will have nothing to fear in the second death. They will not be conquered by death, and neither will they be hurt by their second death. So the believers in Smyrna are asked to press on, to not bow the knee to Caesar, because their allegiance is to the Lord of life and history. Even if the end of their persecution is death in this world, what awaits them is the crown of life that guarantees their joyous, everlasting life in the presence of God and in the presence of their Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. You know, it is said that the bishop, one of the bishops of Smyrna was this man called Polycarp. Polycarp became bishop of Smyrna in about 115 AD. So it is very probable that he was one of the readers, the original readers of this letter before he became, uh, before he became the bishop of Smyrna. And it is said that because he would not bow the knee to Caesar, all they asked of him was you give a talk, token verbal affirmation that you worship Caesar. You don't have to do anything else. You just say, I worship Caesar as well as Jesus Christ. And he said no. So they condemned him to die on a funeral pyre, which is, which is like, a, which is like a, you know, a pile of wood that you, that you placed the, the body on and then you set fire to it. And he said, that's okay, make sure that you burn me with my shoes on because you know, the, the feet of those 
who carry the gospel, that illusion. It is said that the Jews of Smyrna came out on their Sabbath day to gather wood for the funeral pyre. And as these flames went up, the offer was still made. You can still recant and you can still escape death. And there was nothing said by Polycarp. And you would imagine that as he was about to die, he was like Stephen. He looked heavenward and he saw his Lord waiting to welcome him, waiting to crown him with the life everlasting. So people like Stephen and Polycarp and and this man we read at the beginning, they have all overcome the world. They have all conquered death and they have entered into the presence of their Lord and they have been crowned with eternal life. May their bold example of faithfulness in the storm of unimaginable persecution inspire us to be faithful in our small trials today and perhaps greater trials to come. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for your word that is so relevant and so powerful and so inspiring to us today, Lord, that that we can understand truly your majesty and your glory and your greatness that if we were to take it to heart, should show us, Lord, that we have nothing to fear in this world, not even death, because you are the one who has power over life and death. And so may our aim be to gain that crown of life, Lord, and not break our allegiance to you and pledge it to the world, but rather to be always faithful to you. We thank you for the testimony of many martyrs who have gone before us and for the testimony of those who face persecution across the world and yet will not bow the knee to Caesar. We pray a lot for your continued strength for them and in them, as also we ask for ourselves a lot. We do not face the level of trials that they face. We are thankful for the freedom you've granted us in this country. But we pray a lot that the small trials that come our way may not be treated as, um, as, uh, as opportunities to, to go along with the world, but as opportunities for us to learn what it means to be a true follower of Jesus, so that when greater trials come in our lifetime or in the lifetime of our children, we all will have the boldness and the courage to stand for you in the face of a world that threatens to kill us. But we know, Lord, that that is not our end. And may that be our hope and our joy as we go out today. In the mighty and mass name of our Lord, our conquering King, Jesus Christ, we pray.